Welcome to the Rock and Roll and Coffee Show, episode number 67. I am your host, Joe Sebelia, and on tonight's show, my guest is Chris McLernan. Chris is best known as the bassist in the band Saigon Kick, but got his musical journey started in the band Cold Sweat that was put together by guitarist Mark Ferrari of Kiel. Now, after Cold Sweat and before Saigon Kick, Chris found himself in a Kiss cover band called Cold Gin that was actually endorsed by Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons. Now, after leaving Saigon Kick, Chris stepped away from the music business altogether and went to work for his family's business. Chris has now gotten back into the music business doing music for film and TV and also has his own bands, Canel and Big Mick and The Curl. Chris has also teamed up with uh, former Saigon Kick drummer Phil Verone to work on a project called Panic Boom. Chris and I have a conversation about all of this and so much more. I hope you enjoy this episode. Don't forget to go over to Instagram and follow us over there at R&R Coffee Show. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thanks for listening. Yes, sir. Chris, welcome to the Rock and Roll and Coffee Show. Joe, thanks for having me. <laughs> How are you doing this evening? I'm doing fantastically well. How about yourself? I'm doing okay. I think uh, from what I've read on uh, social media, I'm doing a little better than you right now. <laughs> well, if, yeah. <laughs> if you're talking about knees, yes. Yeah, what happened? I'm batting 500. <laughs> um, I think it was the third in a uh, last straw that broke a camel's back kind of thing. Um, about three years ago, I was doing a play, and there was a scene where I was, I was playing a yoga instructor. And um, this scene at the like this penultimate scene, uh, a bunch of guys kind of, you know, dogpiled me. Right. Uh -oh. So I was sitting in a Lotus position and it basically took my left knee and pinned it to the floor. Eesh. Yeah. So, okay. Show must go on. got through it, whatever. Then it healed up sort of. And then about a year after that, I was out surfing and came back and was sitting on my garage steps and stood up and my knee made the sound like a log drum being hit. Just went dunk. Oh, and man. It, it just hurt really badly and then it kind of got better and that was okay and then um it went away again and then this this last time though the the uh the killer was I'm, I'm sitting on the floor again lotus position with my daughter and we're both listening to van halen and um i go to get up and it just says no you're not uh. so so uh, i'm seeing the uh surgeon on tuesday or wednesday i think it is and um he's a a, he's a surfer, which is helpful. But but B, he's a surf, uh, sorry, a sports doc. So he's uh, he he worked for the Atlanta Falcons. So he so gets he, being <laughs> yeah. my need to be up and mobile and and all that sort of stuff. So yeah. I'm I'm hoping he doesn't have to go in. But if he does, I'm telling him to go as soon as possible because I've talked to some people who've had this and they're like, oh, I let it go for three years and it was so painful. I was like, why would you do that to yourself? Yeah. Did you not explore so, surgery earlier? No. Because it always it always just got better. So because um, okay. uh, apparently there's two different injuries that are typical with the meniscus. Here we go, biology 101 or anatomy 101. Yes. Um, one is uh, you can fray the meniscus, and then is the other you tear it um, or just break it off. So um, what I think happened, according at least to my chiropractor, who was the one who dug it up, uh, he said uh, that it probably frayed it at first, but this. It's probably a little worse. He said it could be a really bad fray, but you know we yeah. don't uh, we don't want to take any chances. So go get it checked out. So that's what I'm doing. 
Oh, all right, all right. So you were going to head out to that Rock and Pod convention. Oh yeah. Uh, matter of fact, Ron Keel was here last weekend. Yeah, and, and I bailed out. I'm, I'm in Charleston, South Carolina. So he was in Goose Creek, which is nearby, and he was going to. I was going to go out and see him, and I called him up, and I was just like, "Dude, I can't. Uh, <laughs> my my knee is killing me, yeah. killing me." And and he said, "What happened?" I told him, uh, and he said, uh, "Oh." I said, yeah, I don't know if he said, are you going to go to rock, rock and pod? And I said, I don't know. I, you know, I'm trying to picture walking through the airport just to get to the plane. He goes, yeah, you're not going to want to do that. Trust yeah, me. Yeah. Probably not the best idea. Yeah. So, you know, but you know, musicians tend to be kind of bullheaded in the, you know, I yes. can get through this and you know, I'm <laughs> right? playing a show with 105 fever and whatever. And, you know, no, nah, you know what? Maybe not. Yeah. Maybe this well, time I'll pass. You know, I'm just right up the road from you. I'm up here in the Myrtle beach area. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So Ron was up here, I think, the day after he did Somerville. And I was supposed to go to that also, and I wasn't able to go. We ended up going out of town for my son's birthday. So gotcha. I wasn't able to catch up with him. But uh, yeah. I was bummed because uh, I hadn't seen him since the Monsters Rockers. And of course, he wanted me to get up and do cold gin with him. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, we, were, we were not able to do that because I told him, he's like, you want to get up and jam? And I was like, no. <laughs> why not because i'd rather my 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 law with that is i'd rather spectate than participate thank you very much <laughs> so let me ask you this. so you're in charleston now how long have you been here how long have i been here yeah in charleston uh it will be 25 years this august oh geez uh, well the, now it's august so 25 years now because now, my daughter had not had her first birthday yet and she will be 20 five in september wow i you know first i didn't know that i didn't know you were here that long yeah well i when i moved here i'd had enough of the music business so i like went under a rock yeah um and worked at the family company and um literally got rid of everything i own musically except for two instruments one was a, a martin d1 which i still have and one is a uh a black ESP M4, which I had gotten on the first Cold Sweat record, and it went around the world, and a bunch of people like Lemmy played it, and uh, uh, that that'll you know that'll go with me. Yeah, so you can't I, get rid of that. I, I saved those two, uh, but otherwise they went under a bed for about four years, <laughs> five years. I didn't didn't even look at them. Man. So we came here and worked at the family business, and then um, just really liked it. Do if you, you've been here, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you do you look back at all the equipment that you got rid of and wish you did not get rid of that now? No, actually, because I was never a vintage guy for one. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I always got new instruments to go out on the road because my thought was, um, if someone steals it, I can get another one that's just like it. You know, right. same model year, same features, same everything. But if I walk out there with a nineteen seventy two Telecaster bass and someone walks off with that, good luck finding yeah, another. Yeah, it's gone. You know. So, yeah. um, so there was nothing really. Um, that, uh, that it was like, you know what? God, I wish I had that back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good, I guess. You know, you don't have that regret, so that's good. No. So let me ask you this. Let's talk a little bit about, um, the beginning of your career. I mean, how old were you when you first started playing bass? Are so playing bass or me, guitar? Yeah, or let me just rephrase anything. that. When you started first getting into music. First getting into music, earliest memory I have is musical. Um, which is jumping down up and down on a bed with my aunt holding my godmother holding my hand and singing um, Beatles songs. Nice. So she, she thinks I was about three. Uh-huh. Um, 
and then I got a guitar in the fourth grade. We, were, uh, we lived in Greensboro, North Carolina at the time. And uh, went to Our Lady of Grace Catholic School, and they offered guitar lessons. And I'm the oldest of five and was taught basically early on, don't ask if you want something. <laughs> we, got, we got five kids here, don't you uh, dare. Yeah, yeah. So somehow I got a guitar. Um, <laughs> I have no idea how I managed to wangle that one. Um, and of course we went in there and I was playing Kumbaya and stuff like that. Like, okay, this is not really what I thought it was going to be. Um, so I put it down between fourth grade, which is what, eight or nine years old and about age 14, I'm going to say freshman in high school. And, um, uh, the Beatles hard day's night was playing on WUAB, which was a Cleveland channel. We were living in Ohio at the time. And, um, I knew Beatles songs, right? So I was like, okay, cool. Let's watch this. But I didn't know they made movies, you know, the days before the internet, you know, if you didn't yeah. have in a, in a small, small town in Ohio, if you didn't have someone telling you this stuff, that was older than you, which I did not. It's, it's all news. So I'm watching this going, okay, Hey, they're playing guitars. Hey, that looks like a lot of fun. And Hey, there's a lot of girls. Um, so like, you know what? I went upstairs and checked my guitar, which was broken at the time the bridge had pulled up. So it, it, it was my birthday, like the week or two before. And I had some birthday money, so I took it downtown and had it repaired and bought a Beatles songbook, and off I went. I never looked back. So you started on guitar. Yep. And then I switched to bass when I was I moved to L.A. in 1985, uh, at the height of the the uh, the, the exodus. Yeah. Um, and um, which now I always compared it to the the 1920s when everyone moved out to Hollywood to be a movie star. Right. Um, right. So the 80s were the same way. Uh, and I moved out and was, you know, playing in bands as a guitar player, but um, I was playing bass on my demos of just songs I was writing or whatever. And my buddy Anthony, who was I was later in Cold Sweat with, said, um, "This is before we, were, you know, found our niche in anything really. We were all just both looking around to try and find a gig." He's like, "Man, I'm in a band. We need a bass player." He's like, "I know you want to play guitar. I know you're a great guitar player. Blah blah blah." but we need a bass player and I know you can do it. I'm like, you're out of your mind, dude. I work this hard to be a good guitar player and you want me to play bass? You know, I'm supposed to just switch gears. He goes, dude, I'm telling you, you'd kill it and we'd need, we need you. I've heard you play bass. And I was like, oh, you know, and of course I got the gig, right? And, um, and it, then they just piled on. And I was, it was like gig after gig after gig. And then finally, when I got in a cold sweat, I was like, I told my dad and he's like, well, Keep playing bass. And I said, why? And he said, because you're doubling your chances of making it. You could make it as guitar or bass. True. Like, yeah. Never, never thought of that. And what really nailed it down for me anyway, and I mean, any band I was in post, um, L, well, post anything really, as soon as I started was I could sing. And I could sing really high, like Michael Anthony high. Really? Um, so um, singing bass player almost had his choice of gigs in LA at that point. Right, right. So... Are you a better guitar player or a better bass player? Um, good question. Um, I would say these days it's probably pretty equal because I've spent so much time on both. But there was a while there when I, t I honed in on bass playing mm -hmm. um, to become, I wanted to be really good at it. I just didn't want to be ding, 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 ding on the root note. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, uh, I ran into a, a guy who's now uh, in a long time friend, Greg Chason, who plays bass in Badlands. Oh, yeah. Um, and Greg was like, uh, here, listen to this and listen to this and listen. So he really pushed me to become a better bass player. 
Yeah. Uh, so great. Uh, and but I didn't know where to look really because I went by what I liked. And at that point, bass playing was not challenging. Mm-hmm. It really wasn't. Like uh, I was playing guitar when I got to LA. <laughs> this is such a get your ass handed to you moment. <laughs> I got to LA and there was a Guitar Wars thing at the Whiskey, and I'm thinking, hey, I should join this. You know, I'm the hotshot from Madison, Wisconsin. Watch this, you know. Oh, so you and I get up there and got. Sm- I didn't. I didn't even dare enter. Right. I just. I'll go watch. And the guy who won was Paul Gilbert. <laughs> so that, that that should tell you something, you know. Good God, are you yeah, yeah. shitting me? Look at this. So he was like 18. Yeah, I mean. That- Back then, there was a lot of shredders. A lot of guys could just oh, oh, oh. kill it. It was unbelievable, man. I'm telling you. So, and Slash, as I like to say, had not killed off the pointy guitars yet. So <laughs> when I when I was playing guitar like that, like Slash was, I mean, I could shred, but not like Jason Beeler could shred. Yeah, know? yeah. Um, but uh, I could I could shred, but then I just put it down to become a better bass player for a long time. I, I use it for writing and that sort of stuff, but. Uh-huh. Um, once I got doing into TV and film stuff, I had to get better guitar, like lead guitar again. So, uh-huh. so I did. So, who were you when you got into the bass? Who were some of your influences that you were uh, really into? Um, there were Paul McCartney, of course, um, James Jamerson, um, Dusty Hill, then recently, mm-hmm. recently deceased, mm-hmm. um, Phil Lynott, um, uh, Gene Simmons. Um, trying to think i love pat badger from extreme was he was a contemporary at the time but he's yeah. just he's just amazing incredible um great singer great player um who else um a lot of let me see uh bob daisley big fan of bob daisley um he came up at dinner tonight um who else um but i, I mean a, a lemmy huge huge lemmy fan okay um dd ramon big fan um, Dennis Dunaway from the Alice Cooper band. Um, so I had, it was pretty eclectic. Mix. Yeah, I was going to say that's a wide, pretty wide range of players, but they're all really cool. And they're all really themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I had Greg, you were mentioning Greg chase on He was, he was on the show a few months back and we, was he? yeah, we were talking bass playing and he was saying how his style, you know, he's not just writing that, that root note and stuff. And, he oh was, God, no! He was getting into that a little bit, so that was a cool conversation. Oh yeah, yeah. Greg is—he knows how to noodle. That's for darn sure. Yeah, yeah. So you're out in LA. Um, yeah. How did you meet up with Mark? Uh, Ferrari. Yeah. Mark and uh, Mark and I—he doesn't remember it, but I do because that's <laughs> but that's not unusual because I I've got a freakish memory. He and I first met in a place called Performance Guitar that was on the corner of Yucca and Vine. It's, it was like right down the street from Lowe's uh, photography studio. And um, I met him in there and I, and I talked to him. He was in Kiel at, the, at that time. And, um, you know, we just kind of chatted about guitars or whatever it was. It was, you know, nice and blah, blah. And I reminded him later, he's like, I don't remember that. I was like, I wouldn't expect you to. You know, you were Mark Ferrari and I was, you know, some dude saying, some guy. hi, I'm Chris. Yeah. You know? And, uh, Tommy Thayer was the same thing. I, I saw him my very first night at the Rainbow in that summer of 85. He was the first rock star I ever saw at the Rainbow. And, he's, and, and I told him this later. He said, well, why don't you come up and say hi? I said, dude, you're sitting by yourself. I wasn't going to say anything. As far as I knew, you, you, know, you, you could be nice. You could be a dick. I, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. He's like, well, what do you think would have happened? I said, well, I know what happened now. We would have been friends. Yeah. So he's, like, he's like, well, say hi next time. I was like, 
okay. But Mark, um, Mark was putting together what was called Ferrari at the time, at the time before right. it became cold sweat. Yep. Um, and, um, Anthony needed a ride over there. Of course, Anthony being the drummer, what did, what did he drive? A 280Z, sure, because <laughs> drum sets fit in there great. <laughs> yeah. I had a van, so guess who? There you go. Chris, You're nominated. Chris, can you drive me over there? You know, so, um, so I bring in over to Mates, and um, Oni's there, uh, the original bass player, Mark Norm- Norman is there, um, and Mark, and that's it, and me. So then that's how I met Mark. Mm. Ferrari. And then as it turns out, it didn't work out with Norman. So, um, Anthony and Eric Gammons, uh, the other guitar player, um, kind of coached me through the whole set <laughs> and all the songs and everything. And they brought me in for the audition. And of course I kind of had inside information. <laughs> so I knew everything they were doing. Yeah. And, uh, so, uh, so that's how I got the gig. So you, uh, you mentioned, uh, Oni, he was the yeah. original singer with you guys. Sure was. And then Mr. Lynch took him from you. He did. He pushed him good. <laughs> that son of a bitch. What yeah. The, so how, how'd that work out? Um, meaning how did it happen? Yeah. We were playing a, a, uh, a communal jam show, communal gear show, uh, called the uh, No Bozo Jam at the Whiskey. And we had, we had, this, the deal has been done. We had written a bunch of new songs. And this, so this is like spring of 89. And, um, so it's packed house, you know, everyone's all excited, whatever. And, um, we go to go upstairs and there's Lynch. I'm like, okay. I mean, this is LA, you know, we're not, yeah, uh, we're not in, you know, Mequon, Wisconsin. So it's, it shouldn't be surprised that somebody's there. So like Eric Singer was there, he was hanging with us. So we're, we're, Eric was hanging out as well. And some, so were some other people. And, um, so as we're walking by George, to go up uh, upstairs, Lynch yells out, "Hey, Oni, you want to be in Ferrari? Or you want to drive one?" And mm-hmm. I, thought, I thought, "Well, that's pretty clever, but you know, <laughs> kind of unnecessary." Good one. Um, right? Yeah, got him. <laughs> got him beat. So um, he, uh, um, so we go upstairs, and, and Lynch, who might have been, you know, partaking in a little bit of the uh, uh, the uh, liquid courage, uh, sure. followed us up, and they, and they let him come up. You know, probably because he was George Lynch. Um, and uh, he then starts trying to sell us, tell, no, sell Oni on him, meanwhile berating Ferrari, um, you know, and just causing all this trouble. And Eric Singer's sitting there going, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe, <laughs> I cannot believe this is happening. And um, so as it turns out, you know, someone chases George off finally. And Oni's just non-confrontational. So he's just kind of there staring at the floor, doesn't really know what to do. Right. Um, you know, and it's a it, weird situation. Yeah, it had to be uncomfortable for him. It was. It was uncomfortable for all of us. <laughs> yeah. But I'm thinking to myself, God, tell him to just fuck off. Do something, Oni. Tell him to get out of here. But, you know, he didn't. And, you know, he was 22 or whatever. That's, you know, okay, cool. No problem. Get it now. Um, then it was a little more confusing. Yeah. So we um, f- fast forward to doing some more writing and rehearsing and whatever. And, um, and as as record deals do in those days, I don't know how it is now. It's taking forever for the, both sides to get the, the deal done with MCA. So during this period, Lynch steps up the courting process and uh, convinces Oni successfully to come out to Phoenix 
um, and write, write and hang and whatever and do, do that. And, uh, and he does. Um, and uh, basically convinces him and uh, ensnares him and gets him to join the band. We don't find this out until literally the day we are going to sign our contract. We're in our, Wendy Dio is our manager. So oh, we're in EG no. management. We're sitting in the office. I have my contract in front of me. Everything I've worked for for the last couple of years is in front of me with a pen waiting for my signature. And Wendy says, in that glorious British accent, boys, Oni's got something to tell you. Go ahead. Oh, man. And, and he's like, um, I, uh, um, I, uh, I went to Phoenix this weekend and I'm joining Lynch Mob. And I'm just going, oh, my God. I can't you believe this is happening. Me. And off he went. Man. So do you think so, if that didn't happen, I mean, what was the sound of Cold Sweat with him in the band? It was more, uh, it was bluesier. Um, yeah. It was, I mean, it was cool. I mean, we, you know, Rory Cathy gave us a, a polish and a muscle that we didn't have with, with Oni. They were just two different guys. You yeah. know, you're talking the difference between like, you know, Jeff Tate and Paul Rogers sure. kind of thing, you know? Um, but Oni, we were more like Tesla, Bad Company, um, uh, Free. Uh, I mean, it was still modern, you know, there was still some modern touches to it, mm -hmm. but it, it was much more vibey and getting more so as we were writing more and more. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, uh, it, it was really cool. Um, but there, you know, he was, um, I think he was better suited, honestly, for Lynch Mob than for us. Well, they made a killer uh, record together. They sure did. Yeah. Uh, yep. So he, um, and, and, you know, and, and, and as you know, what did Groucho say? Time wounds all heals. Um, so <laughs> time heals all wounds. You know, we just did, we did the cruise with them, and we're all, everyone's on there, and we're bros, and everything's great because everyone's had a career and a life, and realizes that they probably might have done the same thing. You know, yeah. had, had, well, had been given the same offer. I mean, George Lynch comes up to you in 1989 or whatever year it was, and you're 22 years old. I mean, can you blame you him? You got it. You know. Yep, you. I couldn't agree more. Plus, you know, and I talked to Oni years later, and he says, "Hey, man, no, or was it? It was either him or, or was it Anthony Esposito? One of the two um, said, you know, Lynch was looking at you too because you could play and sing, and Oni loved you, uh, but he didn't want to take two guys from the same <laughs> band." And I was like, "Well," and then you think, you know, well, what would you have done? You know, right. your band is now essentially gutted. We still had our deal, which was just. A testament to Wendy. Yeah, that's, she, that's crazy. How I mean, how you deal. kept your deal losing your singer. Right. You know what I mean? A guitar player, drummer, you know, I can understand yeah. that, but the right. singer. No, uh, I was I was astonished. So, but it makes you think, like, well, you know, if I was, if I, if I was, if Lynch had come up to me and said, hey, man, we're this and this and this, and we do, and all of a sudden, I, no, I got it, elect. I have a deal. I'm now an Electra. I'm playing in Lynch Mob. I'm dancing this, you know, boom. I'm platinum, no doubt. Yeah. Do you say, no, I'm going to hang with my bros? Or do you say, sorry, dude, so I'm out here yeah. too. No, I you think know? you got to go. Yeah, I, I, you don't know. Yeah. You don't know. Um, I, uh, but, uh, um, again, in, in hindsight, like I have a great picture from the last cruise of George and Mark talking. Yeah. Know, just, just hanging out, just talking. And I, and I, I think I was, I think I was sitting next to Pat, Pat Hike, Pat Badger when that happened. Yeah, because we were on this kind of little treehouse where all the, all the it's like this, the super duper high school reunion of all, all the bands. <laughs> you know, everyone's hanging out. It's just fantastic. And I look over and I say, "Dude, you know what's so funny about this? 
He goes, no, what? And I said, there's one guy over there that actually drives a Ferrari. And it's not the one who said, do you want to be in one or drive one? <laughs> what, um, do you have any recordings of you guys with Oni? Yeah, yeah, you there, do? there are there are some out there. I you know I do know that there are. We did um, someone is I think someone just sent it to me. Um, it's I think let me let me check my phone because someone sent it to me and took a picture of it. I, I have not tried to play it, um, but it was if I'm not mistaken, it was the tape that Lynch heard um, because someone at this tape, which is again in, in hindsight, you just go how did how did someone not really get fired for this? Um, there was a tape replication house. And it was a big one um, that gave George a copy of the tape with Oni. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Here it is. And no. Okay. This is our second one with Roy. Um, yeah. So yeah. So they had, they had given him that. And uh, I remember even Ronnie Dio at the time, just, Getting on Oni going, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Um, and uh, hey, like I said, he did and it worked great for him. Yeah. But yeah, but that's how Lynch find out, found out. He had that tape. So that that's out there somewhere for sure. Hmm. I'm sure it'll surface someday. Yeah. It's it's um the Crying Shame is on there, I think. Um uh Killing Floor, I think, is on there. Um me, there's another song I think called "Hard Life to Love." I think it's on there. Uh, that didn't make a record. Uh -huh. um, and uh, two more. I don't know off the top of my head. Um, I'm sure I can find it somewhere. But yeah, it's it's cool. I mean, um, it sounds great. Like I said, it was much, 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 blue, much more '70s, yeah. which is what, except for Eric, we were all kids in '70s rock. Yeah, yeah. So you guys moved to you went forward with Rory. You got him in the band. Yep. Um, and then the band didn't last too long after that, correct? Actually, we did. We you didn't did. last too long at MCA. Okay. <laughs> we uh, we literally got dropped the day our our video got added into uh, heavy rotation on MTV. Wait. So you got added to MTV and dropped by your label. Same day. How does that work? We were trying to figure out the same thing. Wendy's, Wendy, we were in Washington, D.C. playing the Bayou, and Wendy goes, um, boys, I have some good news and some bad news. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, I'm like the godfather. I want to hear the bad news first, but I got outvoted. <laughs> What's the good news, Wendy? You just got added into heavy rotation on MTV. Awesome, fantastic. What's the bad news? MCU just dropped you. <laughs> we're like, okay, that's really hilarious, Wendy. <laughs> no, really, what? And she goes, no, no. We're not on MC anymore, so we did about another month's worth of gigs um, and came home. So you got all so, the you got all this play going on MTV, and you can't support it on your own. I'm assuming you got it. Mm. That's brutal. Yep. Yeah. Welcome to the big leagues, kid. Yeah. Yeah. Now go home. So what did you guys do? I mean, what happened after that? We turned around, went home after we we kind of uh, we'd had X amount of gigs that were lined up, and we finished out that run. Turned around, came home, um, and uh, immediately started writing and trying to get another deal with another label. Um, and it, now at that point, um, and this is, this is again where your mind just goes, how do, you know, who is pulling the comedic strings in the universe? <laughs> because we, we try and 
we're we're trying like crazy to get signed. We're playing we're playing showcases for everybody, but it is clearly we're on the cusp of what's changing. So when we were in Europe in '90, um, our record guy, a guy named Kenny Ryback, was working this new band called Pearl Jam, and he, he gave me the ten record. And he's like, "Dude, I'm telling you, this is going to be huge." And then we we get home, and then someone gave me never mind, um, and I'm just going, "Okay." Things are about to change here. Yeah. Um, so, so we we were ra- first of all, you're radioactive when you get dropped by a label. Anyway, they do not want you. Mm-hmm. Nobody does. No, I mean, if you're an actor and you have a flop movie, you make another one. No one cares. Right. You know, right. you do that with a band and you get fired essentially from your label. Good luck. You know, mm-hmm. you just reform, find another gig, whatever. So. As we're doing, this is would have been early '91. We are late '90, yeah, late '90, early '91. Um, we are showcasing for Atlantic Records, and Jason Flom came down, um, and uh, he's now I I know Flom now, and he's just brutally honest, but it's refreshing and at least saves you time. And he, he says, no, to, sorry, guys, you know, this is not, just not what's happening anymore. We're not going to sign you or whatever. I'm just going, wow, man, holy shit, he's just got no manners. Hell yeah. But, you know, I learned later that, no, that's just flummy. It's just, look, I love you, but this is not going to work. Or I love you and it's going to work. Let's do it. It's just the way he is. Yeah. Um, but he's um, he's raving about this new band from Florida he just, just signed called Saigon Kick. He said he can't believe how great they are. They're this and that. And that's a, they're, they're the next part of the next wave. And I'm just going... You're coming in to see us, and you're talking about another band. <laughs> this is like this is like way worse than talking about your ex girlfriend in front of the current one. You know, I don't know, like, dude, really? And uh, we could not get signed. Nothing, nothing. We got one deal offered to us by Grand Slam, um, which was on a uh, sub of uh, IRS. And uh, when he was like, "Well, let's wait and see if we can get whatever." And, course we <laughs> we got nothing and they rescinded the deal <laughs> so um yeah so it just kind of dissolved it was like shark tank totally was yep <laughs> that's why so much of that stuff going oh boy that looks familiar <laughs> so then you you end up going into a kiss tribute band yeah in the meantime they're like when in in those days um i it's a the lead time is a lot shorter now uh-huh. but we finished our record we mixed it like over Christmas of '89, and it wasn't out. Lindy got it pushed forward, and it was out by June of '90. So in that six-month time period, we had nothing to do. All this work to do the record was done. You know, um, did our photo shoots. We, you know, occasionally we get together and do a a magazine interview or whatever. But we had nothing to do. So I don't like having nothing to do. Yeah, it's got to be busy. Ne- right, and neither did Anthony. Um, so we grabbed Tommy Thayer and Jamie St. James uh, and Mark Ferrari, and um, we all started playing Kiss songs because we would play at people's birthday parties. Because you know, musician, not, like we would play if the like we were the entertainment. But when you have the communal jam, we would always play Kiss songs and just kill them. So Tommy and I were like, "Why don't we do gigs?" So we did, and then Mark, I think, had to go do Wayne's World. Um, and because uh, he was in Crucial Taunt, um, that's right. Tia Carrera's right. man. 
So Mark had to go do that. So there are a couple of gigs he couldn't do. So we just switched around because when it started, Ann was on drums, I was on bass, Tommy and Mark on guitars, and Jamie singing. Jamie was originally a drummer. So Jamie went back on drums. Anthony, who could play guitar and still does uh, well, uh, Ant gets on guitar um, and comes up front. And then you have Tommy still on guitar and me on bass. So we just, you know, we're playing and goofing around and it just starts growing and growing. <laughs> And growing. And then one, one uh, I think it was Memorial Day weekend, Jamie dared us to put on the makeup. So, because um, we just wear Kiss t-shirts and jeans and whatever, you know. So, okay, so we put the makeup on. Place goes crazy. So Tommy's like, well, if we're going to do this, let's do it. So we made up, made up the costumes and got the boots and all that stuff. Oh, geez. And it just... It was, we called it the exhibit because we didn't really consider it a tribute because, you know, we were, we were all trying, either uh, having record deals or trying to get record deals. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, and, uh, and we just started selling out everywhere. And, it, and Gene and Paul came down and saw us and, um, and endorsed us. And we had to sign a potential cease and desist letter in case they, Gene was like, don't worry about it. We're never going to make you stop. <laughs> but in case, in case we need to, and the lawyers go crazy. <laughs> the lawyers. It was always the lawyers. The lawyers are going to go crazy. I can't do that. I can't do it. I can't stop them. Um, we we sold out the celebrity theater. We were the top draw in L.A. Oh, geez. Uh, yeah, right. Exactly. And uh, we sold out the celebrity theater in Anaheim, which is 3,500 seats or 2,500 something. It's just shocking. That's crazy. Yes. That's when we finally got the call. <laughs> the quote from Gene was, Okay, you've gotten too big. Wait, Gene didn't try and get any money off you? No, no, <laughs> not at all. He, he was absolutely, he knew we were paying our rent with it. He, he you know, <laughs> yeah. he, he was, he and Paul were completely 100% cool about it. Let us do whatever we wanted. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, because everyone's so intimidated by Gene, like, eh. yeah. Yeah, it depends on if you, if you tweak him, that's when he can become. Prickly, uh -huh. but otherwise, you know, he could he could not have been more helpful. You know, in, in certain ways, like they they le they lent us all those tapes that you now see on the anthology stuff. Uh -huh. They lent let us their copy so we could get the show down. Wow, I mean that's that's that, pretty cool. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. How long did it take you to get the makeup right? Um, I've never tried it, but I just you know a lot of people do, and it looks pretty good. But I imagine if I tried it, it'd be all over the place. <laughs> It's there's a trick to it, um, and these are the steps. A buddy of mine was um, Silvio Bonvini. He was our ma uh, marketing dude at Atlantic, and Stone Temple Pilots wanted to do a show dressed as Kiss, so he called me. He goes, "Dude, how do we do this?" And I said, "Okay, here's here's what I was told. Here's how you do it: outline first, then the white, then the black, and you use Stein's clown white, uh, and you use this. It was like this Maybelline." Um, stick like you use an eyeliner to to draw the lines keep them crisp and then, right mm -hmm. and then you there's this like maybelline look like a big lipstick and that's what you use for the black and you like put it on and like spread it around or, or you could use a brush or you know depending on who you were and what you're doing yeah um and then you powder it so it doesn't run because if you don't powder that thing it runs in your eyes and that <laughs> burns it sounds like you've made that mistake oh yeah well because we, <laughs> when gene and paul came to see us the first time Gene goes, 
you were blinking a lot. And I said, yeah, he goes, that's running in your eyes, isn't it? I said, yeah. He goes, you didn't powder it? I said, no. I said, powder it? What, what are you talking about? He goes, you powder it so it doesn't run. It stays, it stays still. But doesn't it like, what do you use? He said, baby powder. <laughs> what? I don't, I don't understand. Doesn't it make it gray? He goes, as soon as you walk out in the lights and you sweat a little bit, it's black again. And it won't move. It's like, are you shitting me? Sure enough, I do it the next show and, and um, powder it and it's like magic and he goes see told you <laughs> that's funny <laughs> yes <Sure>. you did <laughs> but but there were two versions of doing it we, we when um we were supposed to be playing vegas when the rodney king riots hit and uh we so we take off at la to, a day early to go to, to, to vegas um and get the get ready to play this this show and they're rioting in vegas when we get there which is just fantastic mm. and uh so we're we're late and we've got a, we have a half an hour to put the makeup on, and we did it. But I mean, was it perfect? No, but we did it, and from you know fifteen twenty feet back, it looks great. Yeah. Uh, but we we did some photo shoots, and that you probably took an hour, hour fifteen to make sure every line was exactly perfectly cut straight. Um, all the colors were you, you couldn't see were blended into the outline. You know, that's dedication. Um, it was, it was, we were really meticulous about it. And we found out that that's what they did too. It, it took about that long. Wow. So after this, you went right into Saigon Kick from that, correct? Yes. Yeah. So, so how did, how did Saigon Kick find you or did you know they were looking for something? I found them. Okay. A friend of mine was um, working at Polygram um, and he said, he called me on a Monday and he said, hey man, Saigon Kick fired their bass player over the weekend. Now, I had, uh, Saigon Kick was literally one of my favorite, was probably my favorite band um, at the time. And um, I had already had a copy of The Lizard. This would have been in June of 92. I'd had a copy of The Lizard since March because I had friends at Atlantic who had given me the first record, uh, which I knew like the back of my hand. And then they gave me The Lizard and I had a cassette of that. So by the time I found out I had the bass player, I was like, <laughs> or they needed a bass player, I was like, hey, yeah, no kidding, huh? <laughs> so um i said what do i need to do he goes here's the address send, send him your photos and send, send him the, you know the cold sweat cd give me you know short bio blah 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 you know you know the drill so i do uh and i get a call the next day hey you know beeler wants to talk to you da, 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 da. cool so he calls me up we get along perfectly he says, well, go meet our manager. He's in, um, I was living in Van Nuys. And he goes, he was living in Fountain Valley. So I go, I go down to see him, get through it. Um, and I'm literally on a plane 36 hours later on my way. Um, and the only thing they said was, we play everything from both records. And I think that was meant to scare me. Uh-huh. It was true. Um, but I think it was like, <laughs> you already knew him. <laughs> let's see what this kid's got kind of thing. Yeah. But you um, you already knew him though, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> so you're like, no problem. Right. Cool. Gotcha. Yeah. There was only one song I was a little iffy on. Um, and Jason showed it to me and uh, uh it was got a forty second street and I went back to the hotel during a break and, and got it down and came back and had it. So Yeah. So so um went in, flew in, um we uh played together, meshed there, went out and played pool and drank beer, meshed there. And, um, yeah, I got the gig. That's awesome. You had to be blown away. I mean, one of your favorite bands, and now you're the bass player. Couldn't believe it. Absolutely cannot believe it. 
And, uh, and the funny thing was I got on the plane to come home and, uh, before I left, Jay was like, Hey man, you know, you're the second guy in. He's like, you're perfect. We absolutely love you. This is a match. We couldn't have, you know, hope for anything better, but we got to see other, you know, we got to see everyone that we said we were going to see. And, you know, cause they were, they were legends in South Florida. So there yeah. was, I'm sure a line of people just locally, who, you know, cause usually bands go with their friends. They right, don't go with the unknown right. from across the country. I mean, the unknown to them, you know? Yeah. Um, no, I, so, I, I grew up in Tampa and I remember hearing about them as they were coming up. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, sh- the shows in Tampa were always good too. Yeah. Uh, but, um, we, um, so I said, dude, no problem. But trust me. I get it. I'm from LA. I've been through this audition process. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'll be lying if I'm saying I'm not bummed, you know, cause I know it went really well and you know it really well, but let me know. Get on the plane, come home. Um, Say say hi to my my girlfriend and say oh, you know what I'm gonna go out to Blockbuster and grab us some movies and da da da. So I go go uh, go there, come back, and she says, "Oh, Jason Beeler called while you're gone." I'm like, "Oh shit, that was quick." <laughs> you know, there somebody's bro, somebody whatever got the gig, and I'm just going, uh, "All right, well, back to the audition grind or whatever it was." And um, the uh, so I call him up and he's like, "Hey man, how's it going?" I said, "Cool, I just got home." He's like, "Yeah, great." He's like, the gig's yours if you want it. I said, really? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I want it. Yeah. When when do we start? He's like, how soon can you be here? I was like, when do you need me? He's like, the first gig's Monday. <laughs> <laughs> this is like on uh, you know a Thursday or Friday where I was like, okay, well, I'll get out there soon. And off I went. So that had to be, I mean, there had to be pressure there, but I mean, it had to be less pressure for you seeing you already knew the songs. Yeah. The only thing I really had to... To, to kind of get acclimated was um, was how they delivered things live as far as who they were. Mm-hmm. Because they were all, uh, they were like the Island of Misfit Toys. They were from all the other bands that um, they couldn't really get into. So they figured, well, we're not going to be like any other band, so we're just going to literally be as kind of alternative Jane's Addiction, in-your-face, uh, not weird, but quirky and um, uh, alternative. Frankly. Yeah, yeah. You know, best word for it. You know, Phil's out there wearing a, a you know a skirt which looks like a kilt, and you know they they they, they got a uh, Jay's got a big huge hat. You know, that mm-hmm. looks like Huggy Bear wore it. And they they've got a you know Vietnamese potbelly pig running around on stage, and they, I mean they're just Matt didn't talk to the crowd. You know, they just played the music and just boom. Yeah, know. yeah. Complete. The they looked. They took the complete opposite recipe of what was going on, and and that's what made them work. So I had to learn that because mm-hmm. because I had just heard them. I'd never seen them. I had no idea. How how about the vocals? I mean, they're huge. Of course, people that know Saigon Kick. I mean, their their uh, harmonies and stuff are yep. hu- humongous. I mean, did did you come right in singing? No. No, no. This is this is one of the biggest mistakes I made. This is always my my joke. I'd let them know I could sing, um, because we were, we were playing. When I got there to do the gig, you know, we're literally in this warehouse of just playing, 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 getting just crab ass tight. So one um, one evening, Jason goes, "Hey, man, um, you want to feel the same way?" And I was like, "Yeah, sure." He goes, "Well, can I play the bass?" And I was like, "What do you mean?" 
you know, he's like, oh, I played it on the record. I was like, you did? And uh, he goes, yeah. I said, I can play guitar if you want. He goes, really? I said, yeah. So we switched instruments and we played feel the same way. It was, it was fun. Um, and then we just started playing covers. Uh, so we were doing Dio um, and I was playing guitar. And we were doing stand up and shout and uh, they didn't know I could sing <laughs> until that moment. You sang and it. I was, yeah. Oh, uh, and they were like, Oh, Hey, <laughs> you know what? Can you sing this here? And can you sing this here? And can you sing this here? And you know, yes, yes, yes. And they were just ecstatic. Like, okay, well, I just got myself a permanent position, I I'm guess. I'm surprised they didn't ask you that, auditioning you, seeing that their vocals are so, you know, so important. It was, I agree. The, the, the thing was, though, and I learned this after my first rehearsal with them, so much of it was just the two of them. It really? was just Jason and just Matt. It was that twin vocal thing. Hmm. So um, Phil didn't sing. Tom might, yell, might have yelled, you know, what do you do, right. you know, or ugly or, you know, something like that. But like the, like the big backup vocals on like All All Right and Dear Prudence and um, The Lizard, like uh, Look Around, All Around, all that yeah. stuff. Um, My Life, there's that's three-part harmony the whole way. Um, because Jeff, Jeff Soto sang that in the studio with him. Hmm. Hmm. Um, but he, uh, so they could now take all these, there was a third part on Love Is On The Way. Um, so I could add in all these parts. Um, also on what you say, there was like a, um, a, a carryover vocal that, um, was in the chorus and now they could do, you know, I could do that. Um, and it was, and it was a pretty good mimic. So I could pick whoever's voice I was trying to sing like, and, you know, at least make a reasonable facsimile. Yeah. Um, but I, I loved it because it's like, wow, we got three good singers here. This is fantastic. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you came in right at the beginning of the lizard right you didn't record with yes. them but you came in right after the recording yes they were when i met um their manager they were they were editing love is on the way the video so so you the got, record was not quite in stores yet so you got to experience that that blowing up when that song yes. was released yep and i yep. mean that that's another moment that had to blow your mind you're like now you're in one of your favorite bands and here you are number one yeah it was crazy it was just crazy. We played that song so much. Woo. Oh, I bet. So one day, I think in Boston, we did all these radio stations around that area. I think we played it seven times in one day. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, when, when the record company gets behind some, um, and they, they want to make sure that thing, they, they get the whiff of, it, uh, of a hit, they go, boy, do they put the pedal to the metal. Mm. Yeah. And it's fascinating to watch that thing work. Um, but it's also, if, and, I, and I guess I was 26 or 27 or whatever I was. So I was a little older um, than if I would have hit it, let's say, a 21, 22 kind of thing. And mm -hmm. I think I took it a little dif differently because I enjoyed it more knowing this may never happen again. Yeah. You know? And uh, I don't know if I would have done that at, at 21 or 22. Like, you know, when I'm 26 or 7 or 28 or whatever I was. Uh, and, you know, I get on an airplane and this is, a, again, not to sound like a fogey, but the days when a guy in a band looked like not many other people on the airplane. Yeah. You know, people are a lot more tolerant and open now about how people can dress and wear their hair and do this sort of thing. So kind of everyone looks like they're in a band. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, you know? um, so, you know, and I'm tall, so I would get on the airplane 
and immediately um, stewardesses would want to know who I was or the pilot saw me, you know, who is that or whatever. And I'd say this and then, Oh, do you have a song on the radio? Yes. We, it's this. And they, you know, they'd know it or it would be on the playlist on the pian- on the plane or whatever. So all of a sudden a bottle of champagne would show up in my seat. <laughs> like, okay. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Were you, um, were you a drinker? Was I what? Did you, were you a drinker? Were you not really? Because no? uh, um, I know nobody f- in the band was. was. Phil wasn't at the time. No, see oh, okay. when 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 he did that walking or wait, walking waking up dead movie. Yeah, I was like I, I remember saying to him, I was like, "Who's this guy?" Because he, when when we were touring, I was like, "You would have two Michelobes, two Michelobes and pass out." Yeah. Huh. You know, yeah, no nobody in that band did drugs. Nobody, and and they they kind of asked me that when I got it. I was like, "No, I don't," you know. I don't do anything. And I said, so you're not skinny from drug use? I said, no, I'm skinny from poverty. <laughs> I can't eat. Right. And they're like, okay, cool. But yeah, nobody did anything. Huh. You know, and I, and I, and that's, that's still, I don't know how people do. I don't know how you maintain that schedule like we did and have a bad habit. Yeah, I couldn't imagine. Yeah. So, and so in those days, yeah, I was a cheap date. I <laughs> one, one glass of champagne and, hey, honey, what kind of plane is this? You know, <laughs> So, so again, so here you are in your favorite band, number one song, and now you're on tour with Extreme and Pat Badger. Yep. yep. <laughs> so it just keeps getting better for you. Totally. Yep. And they could not have been cooler. Um, they were so good to us. Uh, and um, it was just, that couldn't have been a more pleasant experience. Um, and we, I did a, 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 a mic check occasionally where i would do the um you know the queen record jazz mm-hmm. okay you know the ibrahim mustafa that whole intro that freddie does mm-hmm. that the gary did at the um uh freddie mercury tribute so that's how they started their medley was he came out and did that so we're on tour uh first night and, uh, and the guys in the band are like, do it. You got to 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 do it. I'm like, I don't want to do that. You know, shut up. You know, and now we're like, you know, little kids in camp. Shut up. You got to do it. So, all right. All right. So I go up to the, I could go up to the microphone. Chris, you want to check your mic? Yeah. So, and I, and I blast into it. And Gary Sharon comes racing out from backstage. Goes, Who's that? What the, he's not mad. He's just like, yeah, who, yeah. who, and they point over, go, the new guy. <laughs> just, and I kind of wave. So he Hi. loved it. Yeah, he loved uh, it. Uh, I'm Chris. How are you doing? And he's like, dude, that was awesome. Like, Whew. Okay. That had to be a fun tour. That what? That had to be a fun tour. Awesome. Yeah, I saw it in uh, Tampa actually, and I, it's probably up there in one of my favorite shows. Oh, so you saw us do "Shout It Out Loud" and "Drink After All." If you played that, I mean, I don't remember the we, whole show. We but, did. Yeah. We all got. We did the last two nights were Tampa and Miami, and those last two nights we did uh, everyone up on stage and we did a communal jam and did those two songs. Yeah, yeah. How long did you tour with them? I want to say it was four months. Okay. It was it just the states, or did you go elsewhere? Just the states. Now they had already done a run in Europe with them on the first record. Without me. Uh-huh. Okay. So, so that's how I think they were like, you know, no, Gary will think it's funny if you do that. Don't worry about it. Gotcha. So, and, and you got to play with uh, Phil. Phil is one of my top drummers, too. He's up there with, uh, for me, my, my drummers are Phil, Tommy, Tommy Lee, 
and uh, Matt Cameron was always a favorite. Oh yeah, but uh, good choice on all three. That had to be as a bass player. That had to be pretty easy playing with Phil. It was cool. Um, the The interesting thing was though, we we it took us a while to really learn how to play together because Phil really listened. It was like Metallica. Phil listened to Jason because mm. Jason's a great rhythm player, um, and so he he got all his cues from from Jason. So for a long time, he didn't really listen to me. And I was just like, why are we not locking? Why are we not locking? And then finally, at one point, um, I think I want to say we did an acoustic show or something. And he, he finally had to <laughs> he had to listen. And uh, and he did. And all of a sudden, dink. He's like, okay, cool. Um, now we can play together. And we're doing we're we're working together now. So it's I played a, I played a track for a friend of mine, uh, one of the ones that are in progress and uh, process or progress one of the two. And uh, he goes, holy shit! It sounds like you guys haven't lost a step. Like, you're, you're well, playing, we we played a lot together. <laughs> you're playing bass on it. Yes, this is bass. There's okay. some guitar too because I'm I'm writing some of it. But uh, yeah, I'm definitely playing bass on it. Yeah, cool. Hold on one second, Chris. Sure. What's up, bud? Um, Go ahead. The remote's right here. Sorry about that. Got kids no, in the no house. <laughs> been there <laughs> um so yeah so anyway so phil yeah he's an awesome drummer i always liked him um, yeah well well any and it's what's cool is uh that someone hears what we did together um the fact that it's still there they they hear that consistency and and i don't have to try hard which which isn't to sound lazy or apathetic it's just like it, it's it's just really natural um and Phil, Phil sounds like Phil, yeah. which is um, a rare thing in this business. Yeah, what is that? What project is that? Is that, it's something Boom, right? Some, what do you? Yeah, it was Planet Boom, but yeah. apparently there's an Australian Christian band called Planet Boom, which um, I find fascinating. Huh. Um, so we changed it to Panic Boom. Panic Boom. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we are. Uh, we just handed in the. All its files for a mix that starts tomorrow on two songs that are for the soundtrack that comes out uh, for his documentary, 30 Years a Drummer, which I said, mm. you're a year late. Shouldn't you call it 31 Years a Drummer? Come on. <laughs> well, he was going to release that last year, I believe, or right. earlier this year. Right, right. right. <laughs> right. So, um, so he got us kind of all back together, the guys who were in that band. And um, it just, it was like watching, um, you know, uh, this uh, giant bonfire catch on fire. Everybody just all of a sudden had a ton of ideas. A lot of the old songs really stood the test of song time. We wrote a couple of new ones, and now they're talking about one. The label that's doing the um, the uh, soundtrack is talking about wanting to do an entire record. I'm like, okay, cool, fine, you know. And you're doing all this remotely. Yep. How do you like yep, doing so, that? How do I like what? Sorry. How do you like recording remotely? Uh, there's some real advantages, um, especially once you get into the groove of it, but bringing someone in new to it who has not done it, um, can be a little frustrating mostly for them. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's some killer advantages like Rick Sanders and I had a company for you know years called two heads music and we did stuff for TV and film and ads and stuff. And he was in Florida and I was in, in Charleston and, uh, you know, no problem. We got it all done remotely, all of it. And then what do we do? We send it to LA and then, you know, it goes on the air that night. Mm -hmm. So the, the cool thing about it is, hey, Rick, can you change the snare on that? 
you know, can you change the kick drum? Can, and it's just switching around MIDI information and the sample and boom, bam, done, as opposed to, well, I don't know. Let me see if I can go in and fire up the whole, you know, right, <laughs> recording gear right. and change out the snare and hopefully I get the miking right and, then, you know, blah, blah, blah. So right. I personally love it. There's nothing that substitute that's a substitute for a band playing together in a room, uh-huh. and I'll do that any day of the week. Yeah, but to be able to do this do do this with these guys, how else would we do it? You know, what do we have to block out like a house in a city and all get together and hope we can write and record something, and then what? Go into a studio and then try it there, and you know, good God, <laughs> right? Yeah. Not at this age. Yeah, no, I I do some remote recording like that too, and it, I I enjoy it. It's I really do. Yeah, it's a blast. So back to Saigon Kick. So after the lizard comes out, now here we are with water. I think that yep. was yeah, that was the next one, right? Yep. So now did you contribute writing to that album? I I didn't. Um that I mean I had ideas that I threw in there, but I was kind of late to the writing process with, with them. Uh and, and they had songs ready to go. So my writing didn't really show up until Double Details. Okay, so but on this album, a big thing that happened was Matt left, or or you lost yes, Matt he did. or something. Yeah. Did he leave, yeah. or did you guys move on? No, no, no. He he left. Okay. He, he just he didn't want to do it. Um, and again, kind of like this is it was very much like with the only situation where, um, which funnily enough, they're from the same town practically. Um, and uh, I teased. Lynch about that at one point. I was like, are you working with all my old lead singers for God's sake? Because he worked with Matt at one point. Did he? Um, what, what, did yeah, he, he did. They had a project called Stonehouse. Is it is it available? Yeah. I'm yeah, have to sure look it up. Stonehouse. Write that down. Um, so uh, he... So, yeah, I think Matt just... He just didn't want to do it. So there was a, a, a contingent... I, I mean, clearly, I wanted him to stay because consistency is a way to... Um, make your label happy, mm-hmm. you know. And we're coming off a hit, so they want another hit. Um, but he didn't want to do it, and when it became apparent, it's like if trying to talk him into it is like that old expression about teaching a pig to sing. You know, it wastes your time and annoys the pig. Mm. So yeah. we were just making him matter <laughs> by trying to make him stay because uh, he just he wanted to go. He yeah. just he wanted to go. So I was like. And would his, perfor- go. would his performance really have been there if he didn't want to be there? You know. Yeah, exactly. You know, you're going to force him to do this, or he's, or he's going to feel like he has to do it out, out of obligation. And, right. You know, it but, just it wouldn't it wouldn't be the same. Yeah. Now I always thought. Now, although I loved Water and I loved the stuff Jason did, I thought that was a big loss for the band. Yeah. Well, it was so much of what made that band unique. Certainly for me, as the outsider. You know. Yeah. Uh, um, was the sound of those two. And then, of course, this is back to my, I should have you know, shut my mouth and never sang a note, because all of a sudden, hey, Chris, can you now sing all Matt's parts live? Yeah, oh, so now geez. it's you and Jason, right? Yeah, so now I gotta, you know, it's hard enough to play Susie um, on its own, yeah. just because it's kind of this kooky little pattern. Now I gotta sing over that? Idiot. <laughs> I should have just <laughs> shut up. And let him find another singer. <laughs> were you, were you no. good at singing and playing, or did you have to learn that? What did I? What were you good at at singing and playing? Yes, like I, that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was from years of playing in bars. Yeah. You know, just 
you've, you've got to learn how to coordinate those two. And, and back, back to Greg Chase on for a second. He's like, uh, dude, here's how you know when you got it. You can do this. You can do something else while you're singing and playing, like read the newspaper or watch TV <laughs> and not make a mistake. Like that's how you know you got it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. I'll have to try that. So, Never tried that. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> and, and, and I knew I had it when we played somewhere and some, a bass player came up to me and said, Hey man, I just, I watch you all night. It's like, I don't know how you do that. I was like, it's, well, it's just like a kick. It's not, you know, I'm not like, you know, it's not like level 42 or something. Um, no offense to us or them. And he goes, no, no, no. You made that look like you were reading the newspaper. And I was like, well, yeah, if you only knew, um, <laughs> that's, that's how you learn this shit. He's like, how do you do? He's like, I've tried to sing and play that stuff. How do you do it? And I said, the old joke. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice. Yeah. Yeah. It's the only way to do it. I said, and then you'd be in a band with these guys who insist that it has to be right. Yeah. You know, so, and play for fans who expect it to sound a certain way. Yeah. You can't come out there and not have it sound like Saigon Kick. You got it. So, off this album, I mean, what was the single off that album? What did you release first? Uh, in the US, it was I Love You was the first one because they wanted a repeat. Of love is on the way, and then we were going to do one step closer, um, and it fell apart. So uh, Michael Douglas, if I remember correctly, um, Michael Douglas, who had Third Stone, and we, were, which is what we were on, um, decided not to have Third Stone anymore. So Atlantic let us go. So what happened was Doug Morris, who was president of Atlantic at the time, um, said we had three hit songs off that record. Uh, I love you on and on. And I want to say close to you was the third one. Mm-hmm. It might've been one step closer. One, pick your, pick your favorite. Um, then what's funny is two out of those three later became the hits for us in Indonesia in the Pacific Rim. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Cause that record disappeared and we all kind of went our separate way for about six, eight months. And then our, our manager got a hold of us and said, Hey, I know you're going to think I'm kidding. But you guys are number one in Indonesia. <laughs> and so, of okay. course, you know, the, the Spinal Tap jokes are flying. Um, and uh, so we, uh, we, ha- we hadn't seen each other in like you know, eight, nine months. So Phil shows up and he's very like hair to his elbow. I was like, good guy. Have you cut your hair at all? No. Um, so we go over to Indonesia and sure enough, we are massive. That's crazy. Uh, yeah. And those are all the songs that uh, Doug picked off of uh, Water. Now, I always thought, like, if you would have had, like, One Step Closer or one of those heavier songs out at that time, I thought you guys could have fit right in with what was going on. Oh, I agree. Totally agree. I don't know why Um, they didn't see that, or maybe they did and just didn't want to take that chance. I don't know, but I I couldn't understand why you guys couldn't just go with those bands. Yeah, I I agree. Um, I think we, because we might have been not nearly as focused as a riff-heavy band, let's say, like, Soundgarden or Alice in Chains, we, you know, we, we had, uh, if you go back to Devil in Details, we had a punk song and a samba on the same record. Yeah. You know, with uh, Water, you had a gospel choir and uh, a jazz muted trumpet. Yeah. I you mean, know? you guys always had a variety on, even off the first album with the, what was the one with the kazoo? Yeah. With My Life, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah or Chanel on the second one. Yeah. Yeah. So it's always been there. Right. But you weren't putting on a Soundgarden record or a um, 
Allison Chains record or anyone else at that time that you know we were kind of running in the same circles with and hear those songs. Yeah, you know, whether they wanted to do them or not, you're not finding those on those records. Yeah, yeah. they were they were much more focused on the uh, on the more aggressive side of it, whereas it was just one shade of the band for us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We were good at it, and it was one of my favorites. Um, the heavier but, ones. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, I was I was called as heavy Beatles. Yeah, pretty um, much. Because you just had these brutal riffs with a band that could play well, but there were songs. You gotta have a song. You know, who cares if you got the big crazy riff? Not everyone can be Slayer and release release Rain and Blood. You know, right. where you, it's just this unbelievably captured aggression. It doesn't. It doesn't always translate to me. You got. You have to have a song. Yeah, I, he- heavy is great. Can I sing it? Now, I thought also off that album, if you would have released Fields of Rape, that would have been a good one, too. Yeah, I, that was another one of my favorites. Um, we the, the album was supposed to be called that, but uh, we, they, we couldn't convince our uh, label that, you know, rape is a flower. Right. And, that, and that's what the girl was doing on the cover, was running around in, in, that, uh, in that field. And then if you're in Europe, no one thinks anything twice about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So over here is like, nope, we're not doing it. Nope, we're not doing it. So, okay. Yeah. So then, um, so then you went on to Devil in Details. Right. And did that do anything? Again, not in the U.S. so much, but did really well over in the rest of the world. Okay. And then I believe after that came what? Bastards? Bastards, which. I don't think I've ever heard that album. Was it released? (laughs) Yes, it was. Only, only on Pony Canyon, though. So that was only a Japanese release. Phil and I are on one song. No, I'm on two. Phil's on one. Um, and at that point, that's when I had left. And Phil um, left too, right? Or did he stick around? No, Phil was gone. Phil did one song and bailed to go yeah. join um, Pernilla Scales. Mm-hmm. And hmm. then uh, I, I hung around for a little bit of it, and then it just kind of imploded. And that's when I moved to Charleston. So that's when you just sold everything and caught it a day in the music business. Yep, I I am definitely uh, yeah. Elvis has left the building. <laughs> so was that a, a big relief, like a big weight off your back at that time? It it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, part of it was cool because you know I could pay my bills, which was nice, um, as opposed to going, oh god, how are we going to make this work? Yeah. Um, and uh, I was really concerned about how it was going to be raising a daughter remotely you know because this was 1997 and before cell phones and facetime and texting and emails and all that so the communication for someone touring now is a whole lot better Hmm. um especially guys with kids um i didn't want that to happen so the fact that that was not not going to be an issue was a huge relief yeah um um, but it was it was a shock as well Uh, this was something I had worked for most of my, at least teen, from my teenage years up, to do and did it. And now it was done. Um, the only thing I could compare it to would be like if you played a sport and you're in your 30s and you retire. And yeah. You are not playing for the Green Bay Packers anymore. Yeah, you're just done. Or, or, or anybody. You're done. Hmm. And this is everything, your identity your energy, your, uh, um, your, you know, reason for living every day that you get up 
And now, no, nope. You got to find something else, son. Now, did you have was that urge still there to go find something and do something musically, or were you just totally no, out of it? I was. I didn't want to know about it. Mm, okay. And I got calls, and I was like, nope, nope, nope. I'm I'm out of here. Right, that that's it. And uh, when I got here, I didn't tell anybody that I did anything. I didn't, you know. Um, I, did, I just didn't want it. Mm-hmm. And um, I wandered into a music store one day when it was the, the bug was starting to bite back um, because I, I, I did well in the, in the business sector, but it wasn't creative. So I felt kind of stifled, um, even though I was running a very creative business. So um, I, I wandered into a uh, music store here and a guy who's a friend of mine now totally goes, he goes, hey, man, you're Chris McLean from Cold Sweat, aren't you? I was like, well, yeah, but you picked Cold Sweat. He goes, no, I know you're in Saigon Kick, too, but I really love the Cold Sweat record. I was like, oh, my God. And the day, and we, we bought a house, uh, and uh, one of my new neighbors came over, and, you know, as I'm unpacking, whatever, I, I'd, one of the things I did have was about six or seven vinyl copies of the Breakout record, Cold Sweat. So I'm, you know, we're talking and going whatever and find out, you know, he's a rock and roll fan. We're about the same age and he lived in Tampa and he picks up the cold sweat record and he goes, Oh man. Oh wow. And I said, what? And he goes, I had this record. This is great. You know, they, they play this all the time in Tampa. Da, da, da. And I said, really? I said, look closely at the back. He flips it over and he, he kind of looks at, looks at all the pictures and looks at, you know, the long-haired me and the looks at the short-haired me and looks but <laughs> a couple times it goes, holy shit. I can't believe I'm standing here with, with the guy who's on, you know, who's on the record. I said, I can't believe I'm standing here with someone who bought the record. <laughs> so, yeah, I wanted nothing to do with nothing uh-huh. as far as the music business, but I was done. No way, no thanks, ain't gonna do it. Yeah. I'm out. So when you found your way back into it, I mean, how'd that happen? That was, um, there were, there were two, uh, catalysts. One was Eric Gammons from the cold sweats was, uh, starting to get into, um, licensing stuff to see, to TV and film and stuff. Now, Mark Ferrari was way ahead of everybody. Um, but Mark was his own thing and, and, you know, had his own stable of people, whatever. So Eric was starting to do it as well. So he got a hold of me and said, hey, this is what I'm doing. Do you want to give it a shot? Now, this is when the advent of digital recording was starting to really make a dent. And um, I said, sure, I got to learn it, but let me give it a shot. And immediately fell in love with it um, and did well. So uh, that's what got that ball rolling. Then out of nowhere, a friend of mine here named Lee Paget, who's a drummer, um, got a hold of me through the internet. He, he said in an interview I did or something, he said, I didn't know you were Charleston, da 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 we're thinking of doing a Metallica tribute show. Do you want to play? Um, and uh, I got call, I got a hold of him and I said, that sounds like a, you know, a really stupid idea, but uh, <laughs> of course I'm going to say yes. Uh, and uh, so that was my first foray back. So I did that show and then literally within a week met all the top players in Charleston. Uh-huh. Um, and it was, uh, it was <laughs> funny. I went literally from nothing to everything and and then gigging like four or five nights a week 
just because I missed it. And it was fun, and the bands were good. And you Um, could go home. Right? You could go home each night. Yes. (laughs) Yes, I could. (laughs) I go home and sleep in my own bed. Yeah, You are exactly right. So you're still playing now. Now, you just released a new album with, what, Big Mick and the Curl, is it called? Yep, that's that's my uh, my surf project. That's the fourth record. Yeah. So I, I've got another one that's right behind it. I just I had to <laughs> I had to finish one. You know, classic. You know, got I'm like the plate spinner on the Sullivan Show. Just keep everything keep everything in the air. Uh, so there's a that, that's the brand new one, and I'm just starting to kind of get the press going and starting to talk to people about that. Um, and then there's uh, my solo band of sorts called Canel, um, which uh, for, for a solo project, what I didn't want to do was, um, and I said this to Beeler a couple weeks ago and he enjoyed it. I said, it's uh, I didn't want to do songs the band wouldn't let me play. So um, I gave myself an assignment, which was I'm going to write an album's worth of material for Thin Lizzy. So it's going to be completely in the style of Thin Lizzy and it'd be as if I was going to hand it to them go, Okay, here, guys, go ahead, record this. So, um, turns out I wrote wrote more than I than I thought I needed, and I've got two albums. So I'm gonna do. I'm getting ready to get the one done. It's about half mixed. The artwork's done and all that. Uh, and then the second one will be, you know, six seven months after that one. Who is playing on this with you? Anybody? Or are you doing everything? Uh, no, it's me, and I'm on bass and guitar and vocals. And uh, a friend of mine here in, in, t- in town named Colin De Brule, uh is uh, playing uh, the other guitar. And then we got a host of drummers. Um, one is uh, Eric Rickard, who is a local guy here, but he's the main uh, um, engineer kind of uh, st- studio uh, pundit there at, uh, at um, Big Animal. He was the, the same one out at Ocean Industries, which is Eric Bass's studio um, from Shinedown. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Ricky Sanders, of course, um, who was in Saigon Kick for about 10 minutes, but also in uh, Super Transatlantic with Pat and um, Jason and Pete. Um, and uh, so he's playing on a bunch. And then Barry Kirch, who was the drummer in Shinedown, he's playing on a bunch as well. Okay. So, so it's, a, it's four drummers, but not all at once, thank God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when is this supposed to come out? Um, what are you shooting for? As soon as possible. I mean, I'm, I'm uh, Eric is mixing it, so I'm, I'm uh, as you might imagine, I'm I'm second in line compared uh, for the the, the, the Shinedown record. They they have just finished all their tracking, so he's mixing their record, and they're just starting to do some dates on the road. So what the hell? I so yeah, right. <laughs> Come on, dude. So it's not like you got shit to do. Uh, but he, uh, so he's when he gets to it, he you know he'll say, "Oh, by the way, you know I got one," and I yeah. listen to it, and it's and it's and it's cool. But uh, so there are twenty three songs, I think, for that. Wow, because um, there's seventeen or eighteen originals, and then four or five covers, which I'm going to do either as an EP at some point or release them as singles or bonus tracks or whatever, mm-hmm. um, because I wanted to do. Um, covers this i call it the devo satisfaction rule you should be able to turn the cover around and make it so much yours that you almost don't recognize it from the original version uh-huh 
you know, there's no, there's some way that kind of breaks that rule, like um, kisses any way you want it, um, or Van Halen, you really got me, or you know, it's just a rubbed up version of the original. But right. you know, Van Halen's Dancing in the Streets, great example, or um, Manfred Mann, Blind by the Light, or uh, um, Devo Satisfaction. You know, make it so much your own uh, that. Um, there's no dispute that you know you really put your stamp on it. So we chose Copperhead Road by Steve Earle, um, 19, which is a um, song Phil Lynott wrote for a Grand Slam, which was his band after Thin Lizzy, and then he released it on a solo record. Um, and uh, The River by Bruce Springsteen. Um, let me see what else. Bang Bang by Sonny and Cher. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, what else? Uh, I'm missing Hollywood. We figured, well, we might as well do one Thin Lizzy song, so we did Hollywood. Um, and then the the one that's taking the most work, but might turn out cool, but might be a complete and utter disaster, is uh, a song from. It's a Jim Steinman song from uh, the movie uh, Streets of Fire. Okay. So we're trying to work that one up as well, but it's it's proving to be. Uh, a hoot because it's as you might imagine it sounds like meatloaf um but uh and it sounds like it belongs in a movie or a broadway play right, but yeah. it's got really cool good bones as they say now, are you gonna uh, take this on the road or is this you just gonna release some music or what's the plan for it? um i don't know i would say at the moment it's probably just gonna be releasing music because again barry's got his own gig Mm-hmm. You know, and Rick works with Barry. So <laughs> yeah. there's two of my drummers right there. Whoops. Yeah. Um, oh, Mark Danzeisen is the other drummer um, in Canal. Mark is uh, also uh, the drummer in Big Mick and the Curl. Hmm. Okay. Well. And, Mark, and Mark played with Little Caesar and Gilby Clark and um, the River Dogs with Vivian Campbell. Right. Um, so that's, uh, I can't believe I forgot Mark. Mark, you're listening. Sorry. <laughs> well, I'll watch for it since um, if you guys do any shows in the Charleston area or anything, I'll try and uh, get out there, check it out. Yeah, it'd be it'd be fun. Yeah, because Colin and I we did a Thin Lizzy band for a while called Trouble Boys. It was it was all Thin Lizzy, um, and uh, I wish I was surprised I find anyone else in Charleston like Thin, Thin Lizzy as much as I do. But yeah, <laughs> he's uh, he's right up there with me, um, and it, and Rickard played uh, drums in it, so. Um, and another guy named Rex, Rex Stickle played a guitar mm-hmm. and we, uh, it was just so much fun for me because it was no pressure. Yeah, It was just no pressure best. at yeah. all. Um, the hilarious thing was we did whiskey in the jar. People were like, dude, you did that Metallica song. Right, I thought right. you were doing all Thin Lizzy. You're just going, oh. <laughs> well, you're going to oh, get that, no, I think. Oh, no, no. Well, sorry. What you what you say? No, I mean that's going to come when you do that. You're going to get that. What? Oh yeah, yeah. So let me ask you this. So, um, what was I going to ask you? Oh, I wanted to t- go back to the uh, Big Mick and the Curl. Now, is there a big market for that? Actually, yeah, there is. It is much more of a, uh, and it's grown so much. So, and I've I've been doing these records for about six, seven years. Uh-huh. Um, and it has gone from like you're doing what to it's a it's a whole community. Wow. Um, uh, and uh, I find myself adding people on uh, on my Instagram account, you know, a couple three, four, five a week. Which you know, let's say t- two years ago, you get maybe three, four, five a month. Right. Right. You know, maybe. Um, 
but um, yeah, it's really cool. I mean, it seems like there, there's two different types of the surf stuff. There's a very traditional, and then there's the what like the hyper, almost like psychobilly surf, where it's just crank up the thing and just go as fast as you can. Hmm. Um, which is I like a lot, but like this one, Dune, uh, out of all four records, is probably the most vibey one, mm-hmm. um, and which is. The guy who did the cover art, a uh, guy named John Johnson, who did um, all the Saigon uh, um, posters when we were reuni- reunited. Um, and he did Cheap Tricks Rock, uh, Rock, yeah, um, Rockford cover. Um, and he, uh, I sent it to him because he did the one before and he did Paddle Out because I wanted that to look like a UPI cartoon cover. And he nailed it. So um, I said, this one's different. I said, I'm going to send it to you. I'm not going to tell you how it's different. I'm not going to tell you anything other than it's different. And the cover can't be like the other one. It's got to reflect it. So he uh, he listened to it and he came back with, he's like, dude, I think it should look like, he said, do you know who Saul Bass is? And I said, yeah, he did the, the artwork for Anatomy of a Murder and Vertigo and, you know, a bunch of stuff, uh, a bunch of crazy movie posters. He goes, yes. It's like, I'm thinking something like that. I was like, go for it do it and he nailed it yeah it looks awesome thank you it's so cool and i was like like my friend of mine is a doctor saw it and he's because it's it's just funny when your friends or your doctors or stuff follow you on social media he's like (laughs) it's like dude can i get a print of that i guess you can i don't know i hadn't really thought of that so so someone someone might actually have it hanging on the wall it could be in the doctor's office (laughs) <laughs> there you go that would, that would be awesome <laughs> well you're a busy man you know I, I i mean there's so much that i could get into with you i mean you're restoring guitars correct i think i saw that yes yeah um that's i just got the uh certificate this week for my nonprofit, um which is called changing strings um so what i do is grab like midline guitars um that have essentially been abandoned or as Dan's eyes and said, he's like, you, you're taking these guitars out of their comas. Um, and, uh, I, I make them play playable again. Uh, and then, um, I have a meeting with, uh, the meeting street schools here in Charleston, uh, hopefully next week. Um, if not the week after that to do the first set of donations. So, um, oh, awesome. it will be to VAs. It will be to, um, like addiction places, it'll be who, you know whoever wants one, in uh, in that sort of organization, not like you know someone down the street kind of thing. Right. <laughs> hey, you want one? You know, <laughs> right, right. What? Why Just, did you uh, decide to do that? I mean, was there anything that that told you, you know, I think I need to do this? Uh, a couple of things. One is um, uh, I always like doing it, so I always put my own stuff together, uh, or or took it apart. Um, and then, um, when Ed died, Ed Van Halen died, um, I, I kind of pulled a few favors and got the parts to put together a replica of his. Hmm. Um, so I, I, I always liked the black and white one. I thought that was just cool and it was this and it was that and I had to have it. And, uh, so, you know, I did, I got it. And, and I remembered how much I loved putting guitars together. So there was an auction that the Gresh family had where they, they were, drum sets and pianos and basses and guitars and all this crazy stuff um, was going on auction. And uh, 
I bid on 11 guitars, think, you know, thinking, I'm going to get one if I'm lucky, right? Oh, oh no. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I, I know the tone in your voice. <laughs> uh, I, I ended up with like five or six. Ugh. Like, don't. Yeah. Now, the cool part was all of them except one were in need of work. All of them. So you had these Gresh, like 6120s with no one had ever played this thing. Never had strings on it, never had a bridge on it, never had tuning pigs on it. So now I now have a three or four of these things that I'm the first one to play them, ever. I put I put them together, and now they're playable. Um, so but I was thinking, well, I, I want to do this again, but what am I going to – I have enough guitars. I don't need to um, – you know, could just keep what piling them up, piling them up, or like looking for a, trying to find a 1962 Strat or something and right. restore it. And, well, what's out? What's what's out there? Well, there's whole lots of you know Fender Squires. There's you know Ibanez Geos. There's Hamer Slammers. There's you know whatevers. Um, so I started looking around for those, and um, this one guy I know who frequents flea markets. Um, said he, he would keep an eye open for me. And I thought, you know what? If I get those things and I just rewire them or clean them up or take the stickers off or just do the frets and you know just flip out the, because uh, someone would be missing tuning pegs, just flip out the tuning pegs and check the wiring. <clears throat> someone can use this, you know? So um, that was the idea. That way I can, I can work on them, and, uh, which I love doing. But somebody gets something out of them. So I right. literally, the idea is I get them, get them ready, get them to somebody, and out they go. That's awesome. Yeah, it, it's, it's, and it's, you know, I'll be the first to admit, it's selfish. I love doing it. <laughs> yeah, well. So, you know, so if someone else gets the benefit from it too, that's great. So we're going to, um, I'm sure someone else has got this phrase, but, we're, you know, one of the phrases unofficially we're going to use is play it forward. So if someone feels like they have to, um, pawn the guitar for money. Um, my suggestion, you know, you can't make, really make it a rule, but it's going to be, look, get a hold of me first and I'll buy it back from you and we'll, and we'll get it to someone else. So if you need the money that bad, we'll, we'll buy it back. You know? That's awesome. So, but I'm guessing uh, that's probably not going to happen too much if we're going with places like VAs and, um, back to the Ron Keel show for a second. There was a guy there. Um, apparently, apparently I think his name is Lee Burke who was here in um, Charleston and he runs a, uh, an organization called guitars for vets. So of course, you know, my radar went off. Like I got to talk with Lee. Yeah. So he's on my list. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just fun, you know, for one, which is great. And two, at some point, um, it's someone's this is going to make someone happy yeah no i mean that's 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 great i mean you're, you're doing you. what you love and, and you're you're like you said you're giving it to somebody that is going to use it right so like for example with the, with the school i guess what they're going to do is they're going to talk to music teachers and they're going to talk to they're going to find the kids that have the aptitude for it and have wanted one and they were just like, you're really just going to give it to us? I said, yeah. <laughs> said, mm-hmm. said, wow, what, will we have to repair it or restring it? I said, no, we'll be completely ready to play. 
I'm not going to like throw a bunch of you know, hunks of wood at you and go, yeah, there you go. If you, you fix it, take it to your repair guy. No, it's going to be ready to go. Well, you never know. You could jumpstart the career of the next big, uh, next big thing. That'd be awesome. Yeah. You know, I, but if I also just make, you know, somebody who, you know, I don't know, had, had a guitar and they, they miss playing it and now they've got one again. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Bring it on. That's cool. You find it, you find time to do all this stuff and you still find time to find shark's teeth. <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah. I, I'm overdue to go do that though. So, uh, I think with the meniscus problem though, I'm going to be, uh, yeah. not bend, not bending down, picking up, picking up shark's teeth uh, too much. But yeah, the last one, um, last one I was out, I got a Meg tooth. Uh, that's probably, I'll send you a picture of it. Yeah. It, it's easily as big as the palm of your hand, if not a little bigger. <laughs> We, we need to go find some shark's teeth. How do you find these things? Because I go to the beach, and maybe that's not the best spot to find them, but I don't find any shark's teeth. You can, oh, you can find them at Folly easily. You just, you know, you got you to gotta go low tide, um, and um, you got to get there as soon as you can, because other people, of course, are out there looking for it. Yeah. Um, the big stuff, um, I get, there's, there's a couple of creeks in Somerville that you have to kind of scout. And you have to go in there. And you have to sift. You look like you're, you know, a you look like a forty nine, you know, <laughs> out there trying to, you know, pan for gold. Yeah. Um, but the like the Megs and some of the Angustidens and the um, the other ones I've gotten um, are uh, like Great Whites. Those are the others typically you find. Um, those are digs. You you got to go out and get in the dirt and dig and dig and just really? dig. Oh yeah. I'll yeah. send you pictures of that too, yeah, man. These definitely. holes, it is just sometimes you're like nothing. You get nothing for hours, and all of a sudden, oh, what's that? And then you pull one out of there. Uh, and then there's sometimes when you walk away with squat. Yeah, I you bet. Know, like a couple of small ones are about. I know that feeling. You know, <laughs> you know that feeling? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, that, that was, um, that got started last summer during the COVID because, like, well, I I was trying to go surfing, and they kept closing the beach, and then they'd open it, and they this, and then that, and I was like, I I can't do nothing. I gotta I gotta get outside. I gotta do something. So, um, found these friends of mine who do it, and uh, like, yeah, come with us. And sure enough, I'm just thinking to myself, I have no idea what I'm doing. Right. You know, I, this is not like you look at the water and go, okay, I get the concept of getting on a surfboard and hopping on it and keeping your balance and surfing in. This is, well, I'm just digging in dirt until I find something. <laughs> Seems kind of silly, but um, the first one I went on was a creek walk. Uh, and man, as soon as you find that first decent size, like Angus Tiden tooth, and you're thinking to yourself, okay, this thing was sitting here for millions of years until I just pulled it out of the dirt. Yeah. Or the water or whatever. And when, like, and these, when these Meg teeth, <laughs> I mean, they're just, like I said, they're the size of the palm of your hand. And that's not, I, my, my buddy, uh, um, Josh and his, uh, wife, Skylar, they, uh, they've got, um, they've got a collection of mags that are just like literally as big as your hand. And you think, wow. okay, this came out of an animal Yeah, I and, run he, into and that he had animal. probably 50 more teeth like this, at least. Hmm. That, you know, it's gotta be like, bus. it's gotta be like an addiction once you find that first one. Oh God. Yeah. Because hmm. especially if it's if it's a really interesting looking tooth, like there's I've got one. It's a it's a Meg, 
um, it's like almost like a blue and white ice cream color. Wow. Uh, and, and we, um, we, <laughs> we found that one because Josh had, uh, stuck the, sh- the shovel into the dirt, turned it around, just flipped it over and you know, threw it on the pile behind him. And, uh, I was, I kind of looked at it when I was like, hmm, that's something in there or whatever. So I took the, the piece of dirt, which had held the shape of the shovel and just kind of, you know, broke it apart. And sure enough, there it was. It's like, wow. oh my God, <laughs> we we're going to throw away this Meg tooth. And it was one of the coolest ones I've got. Wow. That's awesome. That, that sounds like it's a blast. Yeah. Probably well, yeah. and it's, it's a lot easier because I've, I've always been into fossils and dinosaurs and all that sort of stuff, but it's a whole lot easier to find shark teeth, especially here than it is to find, you know, something from a Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. All right, Chris. Well, listen, man, I, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to chat tonight. And like I said, Absolutely. I mean, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. I could have kept going on. I mean, there was so much more that I could have talked to you about, but maybe we can do that on another episode sometime. Dude, just let me know. I'd be happy to. Yeah, man. All right. Um, Chris, hang out for one second and, uh, sure. thanks for listening. That's all for this week. Join us next week for another episode of the Rock and Roll and Coffee Show podcast. Available on all your favorite podcast listening platforms.